Have you ever actually wondered what the term healthy means? I bet if you asked a bunch of people, they'd give you very different definitions of what it means to be healthy. It's pretty vague, actually. And looking at it, it involves a tremendous amount of components and things that you really have to be aware of in order to become a fully healthy person. Today's guest is Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and we break down what it means to be healthy a little bit further than kind of your pop culture understanding of it. And we talk about her practice, what she's doing during the coronavirus with it, and many other things related to fitness and wellness. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. All right, on here with Dr. Barter. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Uh, looking forward to speaking with you. Hey, I'm looking forward to being on here too. It's it's great to be here. So thanks for having me. Yeah, and I was uh, happy to be on your podcast. It was a good time. I really enjoyed it. You asked some very good questions. Ah, thank you. Thank you. It was fun. I learned actually a lot about genetic testing, which I didn't know with exercise. So that was really cool. You know what's weird? It's like a... Um, it's a weirdly saturated market at this point, but I wonder how it's going with everything going on in the world currently at this point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I don't know. Uh, what's your thought? Do you think people are thinking about that? Cause my assumption would be no. <laughs> I don't think people are thinking about a lot of that. They're on basic survival <laughs> needs at this point, you know? It really is basic survival at this point. I think people are really, really afraid and they're really, really scared, and they have gone into that fear-based mentality, you know, with everything going on. So what's been your experience with um, coronavirus and in your area and, and maybe the attitudes and behaviors that you've seen in yourself and other people? So what's interesting is um, I started work again about a week after. Um, so we had some restrictions lifted here in Colorado. And so we were able to start about a week after they shut everything down and they said, hey, you can treat emergencies. And so, great. So I um, treated a handful of patients that day. And um, I would definitely describe the vibe as panicked, um, completely panicked, not anxious. I'll see anxiety all day long, but completely over-the-top panic. Um, people were afraid. They felt like the grocery store was apocalyptic. You know, people were, if they saw somebody grabbing something, they would grab it. Just really, you know, kind of that you're, you're basically in an instinctual fear state, right? You're really operating out of a primitive part of your brain. Um, so I remember going home that night and just thinking, I don't know if I can work through this because I was so, so stressed out um, watching these folks. But I would say that, you know, as education gets better and as, as I can educate about the coronavirus, I think that fear really comes with the unknown and not knowing what's going to happen next. And, oh my goodness, when are we going to open back up? And if I get sick, am I going to die? You know, and it constantly being a trip on the media as you can educate and, teach people about things that they can do other than buying toilet paper, you know, they, they start to realize, um, that they are in more control than they think they are. So that's been my experience, um, with 
the coronavirus per se. I think my own personal experience with it, um, I just dug into the research immediately to figure out how I can help people um, with this particular virus. And we have been um, helping to treat folks that have mild to moderate fo- moderate forms of this. And so that makes, that just gives me a sense of, you know, empowerment and, and we're seeing the cases get better relatively quickly, which has been really exciting um, to see that and trying to keep people out of the hospitals as much as we can. So, I mean, that's been my experience. And then I think from another perspective, it's been really good to slow down. You know, my practice wasn't like full steam ahead with my hair on fire. And it was really nice to slow down and be able to do projects around the house and just be able to, you know, spend time with, you know, those that I love, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's been good. It's been good for me personally. It's amazing the variety of attitudes during the time, you know, like you have a very positive, um, attitude about it, which is wonderful. I, I feel very similar. Uh, I'm actually busier than I was before in some ways, but um, there's also the other side of the coin where, you know, people are clamoring to not be at home <laughs> anymore. And this slowing down is hard for people. And in your assessment, what do you think that slowing down represents maybe on both sides of the equation? <laughs> I think from an emotional standpoint, when you slow down, you have to be with yourself, right? And you have to feel what's there. When you're not constantly busy and running and going all these places and like, you know, you're constantly stimulated, you have to feel what comes up for you. And so people want somewhere to direct that anger, you know, they want somewhere to direct it. And so, you know, they, they might, you know, I think, um, I think they might direct it at social media or they might, you know, find somebody to blame or, or whatnot. And I just think that what we really feel inside, I think a lot of people haven't done the work and they're able to see what's really there. I think, you know, I think one of the hardest things that we face is um, a lot of people have trouble with predictability or knowing what's going to happen next. Like if they're out of work, I mean, that's really hard. Like I, I, I sympathize with that a hundred percent, you know, especially here in the restaurant business, these folks don't know when they're going to go back to work. Um, and that, and they have, they have, you know, it's a different type of stress. They have mouths to feed and, um, you know, just feeling that uncertainty when you don't, when you're potentially afraid you may run out of money or, you know, what's the economy going to be doing, or am I going to be able to save my small business? I think that uncertainty brings out a ton of fear and a lot of people do not operate well in that state and it brings out a lot of anxiety. So, on top of just not knowing why we had a, a stop, especially if you don't know anybody affected by, by this virus, um, it's hard when you feel like your livelihood has been threatened. So I think on a couple levels, number one, you know, I think the emotional level that we talked about just, and then number two, the unpredictability. Um, it, I think those two things are why people have a hard, hard time slowing down. Yeah, I think so. It's interesting you mentioned about if you've known somebody who's had the virus or been exposed around it, and I feel like I, I try to understand like what that might be. Like I'm not in New York City, 
you know, I'm in the, I'm like as far away as you can in the United States from New York <laughs> City, literally. But I can't imagine, I cannot imagine being in an ICU ward at the peak of these things. Sometimes I think it's very difficult for people to harness a real sympathy or obviously empathy about uh, those things if they've never seen that, never seen somebody in, in such dire straits and people dying on a regular basis, you know. So then the thought process many times comes from what about my job and stuff? It's just interesting, you know, like I always think like I've been around uh, people who have died, seen their last breath, the whole thing. And it's, it's so powerful. And so I never take that lightly that people are passing away because it's so it's such a powerful moment. It's so powerful. And um, I've I've known. Well, my wife uh, is a nurse, and so she's known a few of her colleagues uh, have had coronavirus and they have recovered. But it was devastating for them. It was really nasty. Um, so we kind of saw the power of it, and the nursing home here in our town it spread through it like wildfire. For luckily, I know about none of the people passed away that we're aware of, um, which is interesting. So I think it's just, it's that magnification of different um, fears and anxieties has become a gigantic part of, I think, the news and information out there. You know? Yeah, I think the media is doing us a pretty huge disservice. You know, right. I do believe what's happening in New York currently currently and what's happening in the rest of the country is actually different i mean what is happening up there is horrifying but i think in the rest of the country we become you know complacent because we're not seeing what they're seeing up there and granted this is a highly contagious virus some folks have theorized that this virus has come through earlier than when we shut down um you know, it'll be interesting to see what the antibody tests reveal. Um, we saw some similar things that it looked like ran through um, in, in January and February. And, and you did see on the CDC website that they had flu-like illnesses that weren't the flu that um, that did, you know, the numbers were increased there. So, you know, I think it's anybody's guess, like how many people have been exposed to this since we don't have the antibody testing. But right. What we're finding in New York is that the numbers of people that have antibodies to it um, are higher than we thought. You know, I, I think the last look at it was about 25%. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it, but we don't know that. We haven't checked the rest of the country. I mean, we don't know if it, it ran through here. We don't know that it didn't. We The, the flu-like illness could be completely another virus that we are exposed to during the wintertime. I mean... The bottom line is we just don't have enough information. And again, that's going to breed a lot of the fear. And um, I think also in New York, it, it just sounds like it's just been terrible for their health, those healthcare workers. I know mixed reports have come out on what's being done there and some of the treatments people have been critical of. And, you know, it's a really tough, I think, situation to be in, you know, um, I've heard doctors have tried to commit suicide up there and have yeah. been successful. I mean, I just can't even imagine. So, I mean, they're just, they're going through a lot, a lot. Yeah. Our country's so big. You know, I think, <laughs> I think we just forget about that. Sometimes we think United States and we forget how gigantic our country is and how it operates almost as separate countries within the same country. 
and was what makes it a, a very, this kind of conundrum of how to do things because we're not a small country like Iceland or Sweden or whatever, where there's, it's such a homogenous population that a lot of things get done on a large quick scale because it's small and it's, it's very kind of mono directed. So it's like, Hey, you know, we're just doing this. This is what this country's doing. Whereas, you know, our freedom and our Liberty, especially in how we operate in different States is like, well, this state's doing that, that state's doing that. It's just very interesting that there's just so much diversity and variability that it makes it difficult to know what the right thing to do is, you know, around what we're doing. There's so many different needs, right? I mean, and that's, yeah. I think what we have to recognize, people get really stuck in their position with this, but it's a really challenging situation. You know, our economy's crashing. We have a pretty, we have a pretty contagious disease process going on. We want to make sure, you know, we're not going to have a, a, you know, a bloodbath through here. And I mean, my hope is, you know, my, my real hope is that we have seen the worst of this, but you know, I, I'm not Nostradamus. I don't, I don't know, <laughs> you know, right. but I mean, that's my, my hope, you know, that, that we have really seen the worst of this and hopefully it has run through, but you know, we don't, the bottom line is we just don't know. Right. So that unpredictability is just not fun, not fun at all. What is your sense of how things are? I mean, it's, again, it's hard to know, but if your best guess projection, your sense of various um, aspects of health and wellness, you know, maybe start with what you're doing uh, will look like as we begin to move back into uh, daily living that is a semblance of what we've been used to. Yeah. So um, I think one of the biggest things, you know, I try to do in, in uh, I'm assuming you mean what I'm going to do in practice, right? Yes. Uh, yes. So um, one of the biggest things that I do in practice already is if somebody comes in with some underlying disease process um, or not even an underlying disease process yet, like going towards that. So let's use um, metabolic s- syndrome to diabetes, for example. Mm-hmm. The first thing you really want to do is stabilize that person's blood sugar. So metabolic syndrome tends to be like blood glucose levels, you know, from 100 to 126 or 125, right? So you're looking at that kind of snapshot and it's a lot more people than you would, you would know, or you would recognize. So I make a lot of my patients go and get glucometers because regulating blood sugar regulates so much like inflammation, pain, weight loss, and, and ultimately it stops feeding those gut pathogens. You know, a lot of things can get better if you stabilize the blood sugar. So, you know, an oversimplification of, of somebody's health, but that's definitely one thing that I want to look at. And we know that, um, you know, as you go into full-blown diabetes, what we see is these people will have more severe aches and pains. They tend to be, they tend to have less movement. They tend to exercise less. Um, And so this stuff just builds and they tend to gain weight. Diet's not the best. So really focusing on that education piece, which doctor means to teach. So that's incredibly important to empower people to change their lives. Um, I'm pretty, um, I want to make sure that someone's in a place 
where they can come off their medication. And, you know, I, I talk to them about having their MD on board because, you know, I don't take people off their medications. I want the prescribing MD to do that. But I want to make sure that they're in good enough health to do that. But educating people, I think, is critical on why a pill isn't fixing their underlying problem. So, for example, with this whole COVID bit, we know that comorbidities or underlying diseases increase your risk significantly with right. this disease and with this outcome, right? And so really making sure, I think someone told said this best. Um, I, w- I was talking to him. I, I had, um, we were able to get this particular patient off Adderall. Um, they were on Adderall for narcolepsy. Um, so anyway, uh, able to get this person off of that and, and on and on. So long story short, I asked them later on, I said, did you think your disease process was managed because you were taking Adderall? And the answer I was not expecting to get was yes. I didn't think that I needed to search any further. I didn't think that any additional work needed to be done. So kind of mm. the same thing goes forward, right? You're on high blood pressure medication, Right. All of these things increase your comorbidities in a big way. Um, we know that ACE inhibitors like will shoot it directly to the lungs for this virus. But do these people think that their blood pressure is managed and like in line and they're healthy because they're on these particular drugs? And so that's a real focus for me to make sure that I'm educating to that standpoint. Um, you know, I've been on a crusade for health for a really long time and making sure that I can get people to optimal health, you know, running the tests that I need to, to run, making sure their health is optimal, making sure that from an emotional standpoint, they're doing great. You know, everything is great in their life. You know, exactly what you talked about with making sure their family life is good. Um, you know, that they're exercising, that they are, going outside every day and getting vitamin D, people need to be reminded how important these doctors are. You know, vitamin D is critical. Like people just think, oh, I'm outside. It's no big deal. But spending an hour outside in the sun, that's huge. At It's huge. A lot of risk factors, right? So we all focus on diet, diet, diet. And diet's important, but it's not the only thing. Sleep is so critical. Some studies have been coming out saying, you know, sleep is huge. So, for example, we know that blood sugar is going to increase significantly in somebody that's not sleeping. So is obesity. So, I mean, yes, is it all about managing your food? No, absolutely not. So really looking at these other doctors that are really important that you have to incorporate every single day into your life, as well as doing the fancy stuff that I like to do, you know, to help people. But the the foundation is critical. Yeah, I think so. It's interesting you mentioned sleep. I have a sleep specialist that I just did a podcast with. Um, I'm releasing her episode tomorrow because I think it's just a big part of uh, obviously everybody sleeps or should be sleeping uh, for that. And it's a, it's a huge critical element. I think there's no denying within COVID-19 that it is exposing how serious comorbidities are into the relationship of essentially being being well or surviving different diseases. Not just this, but it, in many different situations for that. Why are we not taking this more seriously as a nation? in terms of these diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, things of that nature? 
Yeah, boy, I wish I knew the full answer to that. But <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'll speculate. Um, I think that um, the older generation right now has been huge at listening to, you know, kind of not questioning their doctor, not questioning the treatment protocol, not questioning the outcome. And I also think that it goes back to the fact, like, again, you're given a pill, you have a, you have a complaint, you're given a pill and your symptom is managed that you came in for. Okay. Well, another symptom manifests itself. And then we have all these things. Well, I'm getting older. It's just the way it is. And, oh, this other symptom creeps up. Oh, well, now I just have high blood pressure. It's what happens when you get older. I think people have justified what is going on in, in, in their particular body and related it to age. And I think what's happened in just like taking a simple pill, we definitely like the easy way out in this country. Yep. When, I, when I tell people like, hey, like right now you have to get off of sugar. They look at me like I have three ears. Like they, they're so mad. And I'm like, this is critical. Your blood sugar looks like this. Or, hey, you want to lose weight? Like it's really important that you don't have that cookie cake and ice cream before bed to, you know, or eat that for dinner and really look at what you're doing and look at your lifestyle. And people don't want to give up that stuff, you know, uh, taking people off alcohol, for example, um, when we're doing like a, a 30 day cleanse, um, they get so frustrated when you take away, um, their vices. Right. And, um, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, I, I have to drink. And I'm like, you don't have to drink. Like, I don't drink. <laughs> I don't, dr you know, I don't drink. Like, you do not have to drink. You know, it's fine socially. But if this is a way that you're unplugging, this is a concern. And the other thing that I've really noticed is people don't know how to cook. They don't have the first idea <laughs> so of how true. to cook. And so when I, when I will hand somebody a sheet, that talks about an elimination diet just for starters, just like, you know, because this is the first place where you have to take response, personal responsibility, right? It's what goes in your mouth. It's actually getting to bed at a reasonable time, right? So when I will, you know, hand them a sheet and a lot on this sheet, um, I do protein, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds um, is a huge portion of, of this elimination diet. I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but um, you get the gist. People, a huge amount of people look at me and they say, what do I eat? And I said, that's the problem. I, you know, if you don't know how to cook vegetables, if you don't know where to find fruit, if you don't know how to go through a grocery store and understand these things, I think that that's one of the critical pieces, um, you know, of eating foods that are actually nourishing your body. Because some of the things that really stress us out is we don't get enough nutrients or vitamins. You know, if we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins from our foods, how can we, we run these pathways that are like neurotransmitters? Neurotransmitters make us feel good. They make us want to stop eating. So for example, dopamine is a neurotransmitter. Dopamine helps us stay motivated, alert, worthwhile, um, focused. It makes us be able to not use caffeine to... Um, to wake up, we feel well rested. It's it's amazing. Dopamine is a huge reason that people do drugs or do hardcore endurance sports because they get so deficient in dopamine. So what we'll see with this is 
dopamine needs a variety of nutrients to run its pathway. So for example, as simple as you need B12 and and folate and B6 and copper and vitamin C for just to run the, just to run your dopamine pathway to keep you focused and all of that. How many people are actually low in those nutrients? And I'll tell you, most people are. And so when you, you're looking at that in, in, there's just so many breaks that happen in the kinetic chain and not having the nutritional reserves that we need make us sick. I mean, we know also with, um, for example, with ventilator injury um, that happens, vitamin B3 or niacin is indicated in helping to not have the same injury from a ventilator or, you know, the list just goes on and on, but we have been depleted of our nutrients. And then also we have had hardcore chemical exposures and people don't realize that they have had these hardcore chemical exposures or that they've been living in a house that has substandards or they think that they can just cram this in and get this done and work, you know, 12 hours a day and, you know, stay up till midnight, you know, staring in front of a blue screen and not think that there's ramifications from that. We have to take personal responsibility to really investigate and take control of our health and ask questions. And I I think that that's basically the long and short of what's missing. Uh, What have you done lately to focus on one area of your health and wellness? I think a big mistake we make is we spend so much time trying to correct a variety of things all at the same time. It's difficult for us to juggle 10 things, five things, maybe even three things. What's one thing that you could focus on right now in your health and wellness that can create a domino effect for you? Think about it, focus in on it, and have action. Great answer, definitely. I want to pull that fishing rod back in a little bit and talk about why we don't know how to cook. Why? Why don't we know how to cook? I think it's that's really juicy stuff in a sense that for for people every day, you know, food in the house, you know, we've stocked our pantries and stuff. Why don't we know how to cook? I don't know. I don't get it. I want to answer this question because I, you know, I pull my hair out in here and I will, I will come up with like really easy solutions. And then people ask me, they ask the fatal question of what do I eat? And I eat, I eat strange. Like I, <laughs> I eat dinner for, for <laughs> breakfast. And so when people are like, what did you have for breakfast? And I said, I had chicken or I had salmon with vegetables. They're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like why? <laughs> I had a salad for breakfast. It's strange. But for me, that that makes me feel the best. And although that's a little extreme, going through and trying to have, you know, give people easy things that they can do but most people can just assemble. And I think that cooking maybe hasn't been a skill that's needed to be learned. I mean, my theory is, is that the toilet paper sold out because people are actually eating their own cooking. That's my theory. <laughs> I could be wrong. 
I could be wrong, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if we don't take the time, if it feels overwhelming, um, if people have had bad experience with experiences with it, but I found as even simple as walking through the grocery store, people just don't know what to buy. And I think it comes back to, again, that personal responsibility piece of really sitting down with a cookbook or getting on some sort of YouTube video and trying to figure out how to put these things together. Um, you know, I, I just think it wasn't a learned skill. You know, and maybe people would say that about me and my sewing. I mean, not a learned skill for me. (laughs) You know, I suffer through that a little bit. I mean, I've got some basic work, but it's just not something that I've ever really been interested in learning. And I have never really needed to learn it. Would it benefit my life? Sure. But I have never made time for it because it wasn't a priority. And I'm assuming cooking is the same for a lot of people. I think there's been a shift and that skill of cooking, like I noticed growing up, like, like my mother cooked constantly. Like she always cooked for us. Like I was used to that. And most of my friends, it was the same thing. And my mother's mother cooked all the time and her mother cooked all the time. Or somebody was always making meals or they were passing down the tradition of learning to make food and learning your way around a kitchen. I was fortunate when I was in high school, my senior year, I took um, oh my gosh, trying to remember then. Oh, international foods and gourmet cook, gourmet cooking. I took it the entire year. So I learned all the things you needed to know about the tools, utensils, different methods of cooking, braising, sauteing, all that stuff. When I was in high school, I was the only dude in that class. Mm. And, but I thought I'm going to need this one day, you know, I'm going off to college. I want to be able to make my own things but it was severely de-emphasized. And I mean, I don't know what high school is like now, but I would imagine they're not offering that stuff to kids anymore. So I think there's this big breakdown in our culture of de-emphasizing cooking as a skill that you should learn when you're young. So you got a generation of people who are like, just rely on delivery or going out to eat at restaurants and things because they haven't been told that cooking's a skill. They see it on TV as like, a chef does it or something like that. Or, you know, some celebrity chef makes his food, you watch cooking shows, but you really can't cook yourself type of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you made a lot of good points. Yeah, I, I think that that's true because I certainly grew up watching, you know, cooking and we would socialize around food. And I just, when, when I got into this type of lifestyle, I just made it a priority to learn how to cook. Like it wasn't really an option. I had to figure it out. But I also think another contributing factor to this is people are so busy and they get home, Mm. you know, at, 8 or 9 p.m. And who wants to sit down and cook at 8 or 9 p.m.? <laughs> you know, that's irritating. And I think that that's just not a priority. So you grab something fast. And I mean, I have certainly been party to that. And I think looking at what I tend to do, which tends to be extreme again, I wake up in the morning and I cook all my meals for the day. That's just what I personally do. Um, but I think that that seems overwhelming and daunting for a lot of right, people. Right, right. I don't care if I eat the same meal twice in one day. That doesn't matter to me to, to make extra. Um, 
So I've heard some people just don't like to eat leftovers. So I just think we have excuses for instead of just buckling down. And I think it depends on what we want more. Do we want to be healthy or do, or, or do we just want it to be convenient and easy? And ultimately you have, you will pay the piper, you know, if you take the easy way out eventually. And so I think we're seeing that in a pretty massive way in our country right now with all the panic going on again with COVID, but you know, we are, we consume most of the world's pharmaceuticals. I mean, it's concerning. And so I really am hoping that this is a wake up call for people to really look at, um, look at themselves and, and fix themselves because, um, because it's not going to get better. You're just going to probably deteriorate a little bit more. So I just, I really, that's my great hope. And it seems like people really are waking up. I hope so. Uh, I think it was interesting, like the word health or healthy. And I wonder if somebody listening and they say, Dr. Barter, what is, what is healthy mean? Like what, I feel like it's so, it's so vague for a lot of people, like what they think about, about it being like one thing, like exercise or nutrition. Like if somebody asked you, what does healthy mean? What would you tell them? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I will tell you what healthy, what, what I've seen, you know, recently on some social media sites, it gets thrown around a lot. So folks will say, I have uh, an aunt that got sick with COVID-19 and she's healthy or she's in the hospital with COVID-19 and she's right. What does that mean? And I, and that's exactly the question I asked. What does that mean? So I think when you're looking at somebody to determine if they're healthy or not, you need to look at everything. You need to look at their lab work. You need to see how they feel. So when we look at lab work, just because you're in reference range doesn't mean you're healthy. There are other ranges that the literature has determined that is actually a healthy range. When you are in reference range on your lab work, you are normal or you are average. That doesn't mean you can't have full-blown autoimmunity. That doesn't mean you can't have underlying health problems. It just means you're like the rest of the population, right? So I think looking at that is really important and seeing what those numbers look like. What do your liver enzymes look like? How do you digest food? Do you feel, um, do you feel shaky between meals? Like, what are your symptoms? Like, what do you have to put a Band-Aid on every single day and just soldier through? You shouldn't have to do those things. So I think looking at somebody to make sure their mood is stable, because mood has a lot to do with blood sugar and neurotransmitters and gut health. So if somebody's somebody is struggling with, for example, depression and anxiety, there's something underlying going on that is causing that. We should feel good. We should feel happy. We should want to connect with people. We should have our our bowels should be working well. We should have a bowel movement every morning. We should feel good when we move. It should help us feel better when we move. Um, you should have the energy to go out and do that. You should, on checks, like making sure that your blood pressure isn't high. Um, what is your heart rate? You know, what is your glucose? And looking at some of these things, because what I've noticed in practice 
has been someone will tell me I'm completely healthy or I only have these three problems going on. And I get their blood work back <laughs> and I'm like, holy cow, like, are you serious? And they're like, oh, I, you know, I knew somebody that, you know, got treatment from you and they had to do a really big treatment because of whatever, all their environmental and all their chemical exposures. And when I'm looking at these things, people sometimes don't intuitively know what's going on in their body because they have learned to block some of these things out. And so I think also, you know, having not only the subjective feedback from somebody and how they're feeling, but also the objective feedback, because these people that are real staunch and they just soldier through, they're the ones that suddenly end up with cancer. They were healthy and they ended up with cancer, quote unquote, healthy. And so you have to look at maybe what could be underlying that, right? So toxic, toxic exposure, we're all exposed all the time. Somebody walks in and they're like, I'm not exposed to toxins. I've never had any toxic exposure. No, no, you totally have. You absolutely have. And so looking at that to be able to clean these things out on a fairly regular basis and somebody that really takes control of their health, they know how they feel when they eat certain foods. They know how they feel when they drink alcohol. They know how they feel when they don't get the correct um, amount of sleep. That to me indicate starts to indicate health. Lack of pain in their body is also another indicator. I think of health. Um, long hair or, or hair that's full, um, nails that are long, mm. uh, you know, skin conditions, like how much, for example, for women, how much are they covering up with makeup or how much makeup do they have to wear to look a certain way? So somebody that looks completely different with a full set of makeup on. And then, you know, when they take that off, they don't, right. I mean, yeah, you have to, you have to look at those things because a lot of times you'll see grain of skin. You'll see um, a lot of acne. Your body is trying to get something out of your system. And so it's using your skin as a tertiary organ of elimination or a third organ. So, I mean, I think looking at all those things to determine what the health is of a person, you know, so, um, yeah, well, you know, able to sleep through the night, that's a big one. So a lot of folks have insomnia. So, I mean, I think yeah. long rundown to your short, short question, but I think a lot determines health. You know, I think, man, those are some great points. I think especially the whole thing about skin health and blood work. I don't think we're thinking about these things, honestly, as a, as a people. We, we think about working out and nutrition a lot. And we don't think about these other, if you actually say, what is health? It'd be a pretty long list of things that a person would have to really start thinking about it for it. That's why I just I just think the word is thrown around so much. I mean, you know, if like when I was on your podcast, I was like, we have to explain exercise, physical activity, and movement. These are not the same things. I'm very into like operationalizing these things so that people have are educated. Like if somebody says they're healthy, just because they look like a thin person doesn't mean that they're healthy. You know, it's like, but we I, we put people in these categories because they look a certain way for that. So I thought I just wanted to get an idea of like, what does health mean to you? What is it? I mean, if you look at the definitions of it, it's just so vague, you know, but people throw it around like, it's just like any other, oh, I'm so healthy. I'm like, are you actually? You know? I, think, I think one of the things that's also often overlooked is um, 
you know, there can be reasons that uh, women can't get pregnant or with their cycles or men with low testosterone. And there can certainly be underlying reasons, but the first thing to go in women is hormones. So you see a lot of infertility start to happen, or you see the PMS start to get really severe um, in their particular cases. And I think that that's also an issue of underlying health. You know, um, I think the more severe, it's the last thing I personally work on, but the more severe the, the PMS or the hormones or the infertility is, we know that there's something going on upstream and your body has just said, no, it's not the time to get pregnant. We need to put all of our resources into X, Y, or Z, your thyroid, your gut, whatever it is, probably all of those things before we're ready to make a baby. Our, our bodies are brilliant. And so, I mean, looking at these things and, and women are shamed and they go through all this in vitro therapy, mm -hmm. but if you can build the system back up and you can kind of fix the underlying problems, you're going to have a healthy baby. You're not going to have postpartum depression, postpartum mania. So all of these things are not normal. Um, you know, you have to look at any sort of itis. Oh, I just get bur bursitis. Oh, I just get pain. Oh, I just pop an Advil every day. Holy cow. Like I see people that pop Advils, you know, twice a month and that's it. And it still is affected on some of the specialized lab testing. I can actually see it on the specialized lab testing that I mm. run. Like, do you do X or do you, do you do aspirin or Advil? They're like, yeah, wow. I mean, so it's only just a little amount. So it definitely affects us. So any sort of Band-Aid you need, you have to really start to look at that. Totally. You know, what's interesting. I want to transition from you know, the idea of health and different factors for it to an area I think you're very aware of and we've discussed on, on, on your podcast is kind of the, the people that are, they're taking their health very seriously or they're, they're exercising like crazy. Talk, let's talk about the other side of the equation. Maybe the people who are, not the people who are like, hey, I'm starting from ground zero. This is really tough for me. But talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing with the people who are maybe overdoing it with their obsession with health and wellness and fitness? It's hmm, a good question. Um, you see some interesting things. Um, for the most part, um, more with musculoskeletal injuries is what I see with overdoing it. You know, you're going to see some pretty extreme mus musculoskeletal imbalances. Um, so I think the example we used on my podcast that I see a lot here is um, especially women can overcompensate, for example, with their quads. They can do almost everything with their quads mm -hmm. and they can't activate maybe their posterior chain, meaning their glutes or their hamstrings. Um, and so what I will generally see on labs, and it'll vary, um, some women that are real, real serious athletes, um, I'll see a lot of thyroid problems. Um, but I also see thyroid problems in women that are not severe athletes or, or huge athletes. Um, I see a lot of, I can see a lot of gut trouble. Um, a lot of times we talk about the athlete diet. So I have to go through and see like what they're eating because they can get away with eating a lot more junk because of how they're burning. Um, and, and the calories that they're burning. So, you know, especially, you know, out here, it's not uncommon for somebody to be like, yeah, I just did a hundred mile bike ride, whatever, no big deal. Right. So it's really not uncommon or I just, you know, I just climbed 7,000 
um, vertical feet, you know, and 80 miles, whatever. It's just, that's just how the culture is out here. And so people will get on the athlete's diet and they will just eat a bunch of junk. And so you won't see symptoms per se that they think is potentially related to diet. You, um, They will sometimes just be more fatigued. They won't have as much power, like it'll be fine for a little while. And then suddenly they'll realize, okay, well, I don't have as much power. I'm feeling more inflammation. I feel more aches and pains when I work out. Um, you know, so you can get into that overtraining bit. And um, especially here, what I see is most people don't drink enough water because it's dry here. So it's not humid. So you're not really thirsty. And so people don't hydrate enough. And so um, both the the sweating that you don't know that you're doing and then the lack of electrolytes and the lack of uh, fluid is huge. So people just do not realize how much they're sweating here um, to increase that water intake. Um, other things that I see is even with, uh, with guys that are really pushing hard with exercise, you will see lower lower levels of testosterone. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not really that uncommon and higher than normal levels of inflammation. And remember that testosterone and inflammation have an inverse relationship, which means that if inflammation goes up, testosterone can go down. And so we definitely see that inverse relationship happening. Very interesting. I feel like if you look at both spectrums, kind of your sedentary or beginning, well, let's just say sedentary, and then your kind of ultra, super hardcore exerciser, in many ways, they exhibit the same personalities. In many ways, they're both not willing to start, and not one is not willing to start, and one is not willing to cut back on some level. Which I think is a funny, if you really look at it, it's like getting somebody to start doing something and then getting the other side of the spectrum to say, hey, you need to rest some more for that. Have you ever, have you seen kind of that, that type of relationship? I know I have with being somebody who still works out pretty hard, former athlete. It's hard to go backwards a little bit and say, I need to recover some more and things of that nature. I'm sure in Colorado, that's a big thing, you know? I initially, when I started practice, I was afraid to tell people to rest. I was terrified because it just didn't go over well initially. Um, Now I'm not afraid to tell them to rest, but they will not rest um, for the, the amount necessarily of time. So you can get an athlete to rest. They, you can get them to take a week off potentially. And so I just have to work fast in that week because that's all I'm going to get. Um, unless they're severely injured, but an ankle sprain strain, like they're going to want to be running again, absolutely in a week. So I have to get it stabilized to the point because they're going to do it whether I like it or not. So I think, um, and it's been interesting to me to see the other side, you know, um, you know, when you'll see somebody come in and they'll have, you know, elevated cholesterol or elevated triglycerides or high blood pressure or high glucose, and you're trying to get them to exercise because that is, I think, really quite important. Um, and, and I'll say, you know, it would, it would really help you to exercise. You could see me a lot less. You're going to notice a lot at more aches and pains. And they're like, no, I'll just continue to see you every two weeks, every three weeks, whatever it is. And I, that to, to me is perplexing because I'm trying to get them to a point where they don't need me. 
And they're like, nah, I don't, whatever. I'm good to just come here forever, you know, every three weeks and just do maintenance. It's fascinating to me to, to hear that because if it were me, I would want the person um, helping getting me well to, to take me to the fastest path there. Um, but I don't think everybody feels maybe that way. So it's very, it's a big dichotomy to work with when you have, you know, pretty much a, an incredible athlete, um, you know, and then you have somebody that you just can't even get to walk around the block. <laughs> you know, in the same day, it within you know a couple hours of each other in practice. I it's super fascinating to see that, and just for me, it it makes me a better clinician and able to be more adaptive, adaptive, and really get creative with um, how I change my protocol. Break down a little bit, um, kind of the psych profile or the mentality of patients who have become very successful. They're, they're actually listening to what you're telling them and they make big jumps in their, in their wellness. So this is interesting. A patient actually came to me and um, so I guess what I told her um, at the time and she's just like had incredible progress, but um, I sit everybody down and I say, listen, I need you to do this diet um, it's going to eventually be a lifestyle change. I need you to be on board. I need to, you to do what I say pretty much a hundred percent. If you have any concerns, if you feel worse, I want to know, communicate with me. And, um, and, and I'm going to have you do supplements and then, you know, you're going to follow this regimen. And so, um, and I said, you know, this is going to be probably about, it's going to take me a year to get you better totally to where we want to go and a year to totally reach all of your goals. And so, so one of the patients um, that I've seen for a long time reflected that back to me. And she was like, literally, if I did what you said, it actually got better. So I think that people um, that follow me, that trust me, that believe what I'm saying, that are on the same page and they see the benefits um, are, are, that's huge. Um, People that are willing to run the lab work um, and really look at, okay, why? So we can have a streamlined protocol. So I'm not looking at somebody and saying, well, your symptoms exhibit this, but it could be this, but we could do both of these, but you know, it just, it's so much more streamlined. So people that are willing to run the lab work, willing to go through a protocol, willing to add in exercise, willing to add in, you know, all those things, willing to sleep. I think all of those things are, are critical. I think the willingness and the determination to get better. So when somebody comes in and they say, I ask people what their goals are. And I think that this determines like who's going to stick to it and who's not. So someone says, my goal is to lose weight. Uh-uh, do better. Because at at midnight at night, at midnight or 11 p.m., you're going to sit there and you're going to say that chocolate ho-ho is calling my name and my Florida vacation is not for another, you know, six months and I can do that. And, oh, it's not for another four months and I can do that. So people that actually have real objectives. So if somebody says, I want to lose weight because I'm going to my granddaughter's graduation and I can't fit in an airplane seat, I'm going to, um, I'm going to do this and um, I want to walk to meet my child to do X and I haven't been able to do that. People that have real goals 
and real things that are, are the determining factor because this stuff gets hard. It gets hard. Like you want to eat sugar. You sometimes, you know, for a short period of time, you have to take a lot of supplements to reverse depending on what's going on. Or maybe you don't have to take it. I don't know. It depends on the case. Um, everybody's individualized, but you have to have a goal bigger than yourself, bigger than how you look in a swimsuit. And I think that that really determines who's going to follow through and who's not. And it has to be, you know, and I think everybody getting to the point is different. So my, my, what I want for everybody, but I've stopped putting my expectation out there is I want everybody to just be incredibly happy in their life, to feel great, to be at the weight that they want to be at, to um, have the energy that they want to do, to be able to do the sports and activities that they have always wanted to do, you know, pain-free, feeling great. But some people's goals, and I've had to readjust that, are different. Some people just um, just don't want any pain and they don't care about the rest of it. And some people just want to be in a good mood and that's all that they want and they don't care about the rest of it. So I think, you know, also accepting from my end of a, as a clinician, not to push people too much that don't need to be pushed, um, that just want X, even if I know it can be so much more and I can tell them that, but if I have to support them where they are and figure out the best way to support them and potentially not push them. But, um, I think as a general rule, those people that trust me, believe what I'm doing and are a hundred percent willing to follow through and do what it takes, um, are the folks that do the best. They're committed to the process. That's awesome. I think, I mean, it's well said. I mean, I think a very specific kind of outline of, of people are successful with that. I think it's been filled with a lot of great information. I knew that would happen with you. I mean, you just have such a depth of knowledge. And I'm let everybody know, Dr. Barter thinks I look very young. Okay, guys. So, <laughs> it's so weird. Well. I don't even know. Like how I was like, how old are you? Are you serious right now? It's yeah. great. It's great. You got to bottle that up. <laughs> <laughs> that doing? I need to keep doing it. So I'm going to keep doing it. Okay, people. This is no. This is not a video podcast. But she's seen how I look. You guys should know. Okay. <laughs> It's true. It's all true. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Barter. It's uh, very insightful. I think a lot of takeaways from it. And uh, I just appreciate what you do and um, the time uh, that you give people. She has a great podcast, Fearless Health. Uh, Check it out. Um, And any place people can find you, please let them know. know. Yeah. So, um, my practice, if you guys want to, if you guys have questions for me, we do virtuals. It's alt, A-L-T, FAM, F-A-M, med, M-E-D, short for alternative family medicine and chiropractic. And then, um, you know, our podcast obviously is fearlesshealthpodcast.com if you guys are interested, um, in that. So we all, we obviously have socials and, uh, we put out information on there, but two biggest sources are our websites. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Barter. I appreciate you. Totally. Thanks so much for having me on, Dr. D. You got it. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.